Welcome to the Jolly Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Barrett. This podcast is for those who are interested in the conversation around diversity, inclusion, and equity. Each week, I'll be interviewing a guest who has something special to share or is actively part of building solutions in this space. Let's get started. So please join me for a fabulous conversation with Glennis Redmond. And before we get started, I just want to tell you a little bit about Glennis. Glennis Renman travels nationally and internationally, reading and teaching and performing poetry. She's a Kennedy Center teaching artist and has had two poet-in-resident posts at the Peace Center for the Performing Arts in Greenville, South Carolina, and the State Theater in New Brunswick, New Jersey. She's been the mentor poet for the National Student Poets Program since 2014, And in the past, she's prepared these exceptional youth poets to read at the Library of Congress, the Department of Education, and let's not forget for First Lady Michelle Obama at the White House. Glennis is amazing. She believes that we all defy categorization, but knows that it is our human nature to label and define. Thus, she has been deemed a poet, a teaching artist, Uh, And however she understands that this and more are who we are, this is where the term imagination activist enters. So when she sits in a poetic circle with others, she's still informed by her counselor training. And in this circle, she helps participants discover their depths and enable them to venture on their own creative paths. She's most recently been awarded the highest award for the arts in the state of South Carolina, the Governor's Award. And also she'll receive the Charlie Award given in memory of Charles Price, granted by the Carolina Mountains Literary Festival in the fall of 2020. In 2014 through 2020, Glennis has served as the mentor poet for the National Students Program, Poets Program. Her latest book, The Listening Skin, will be published by Four Way Books in 2022. So be on alert for that. So welcome, Glennis. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you, Melissa. It's so great to talk to you today. I mean, honestly, I could have gone on and on with your bio. Uh, You have so many things in your background that are so interesting. I'm still trying to figure out what an imagination activist is. Well, you know, it really stems from when I was five years old and I was a daydreamer and I used to look out the window and I come from a very Southern loving mother um, who would say, if you don't have, you, you don't have nothing to do, I'll find you something to do on a Saturday. She wanted us to do chores. Yes. And I was that daydreamer that was looking out the window. It looked like I was doing nothing, but my inner life was so rich. And uh, that was the start of me being a poet. So when I walk into a room with people who want to write poetry or prose or find their inner artist or just be creative in that way, I come in and say, it is okay to do that. It is okay to spend time in the landscape of your imagination. You know, play is one of the biggest ways children learn. And then as adults, we forget. That you know, we get so specialized and our field becomes so professional, we forget to play. Yes. We yeah. forget 
to go outside of our boundaries and do something that's not, you know, our number one thing in our wheelhouse, you know, and that's, that's my job is to be at the, be at the, um, you know, be a facilitator and be at the helm of the circle and say, Hey, let's go. Let's see what happens. Uh, really tapping into that creativity, which is kind of nice. Having my husband, I think I told you, was a professional storyteller. Yes. And, you know, that sense of playfulness, performance, kind of, you know, just pl- proliferated. Since I have a history of working in finance, sometimes Numbers. You, don't, <laughs> you don't always tap into that side of your brain. So um, right. I can appreciate that uh, for sure. So most can, of us are left and right brain, you know, and yes. we just go towards our strengths, yes. you know, and of course I'm not a numbers person, but I have to, as a poet and teaching artist, I have to, I have to, I have to remind myself of the business side, you know, as well. So it's really good to be ambidextrous. You're not yeah. either or we're both. Yeah, no doubt. So you did talk a little bit about your mom and your upbringing. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about how you got to where you are today? Because you have such an interesting journey. Well, uh, try to put it in a capsule. I am a military kid, an Air Force brat, um, one of five. I'm the fourth. And uh, we lived all over out of my siblings, I'm the only one born in South Carolina. My brother before me was born in Everu, France, which was um, much to my chagrin because people would say, you know, to him, where are you born? And he would say, Everu, France. And then they would ask me and I would say, Sumter, South Carolina. And it just did not have the same ring, you know, the, you know, as a poet, it would have been, you know, why couldn't we have switched places? But it was much later when we moved back to the South from Aviano, Italy, to um, New Jersey, to my parents' home, to South Carolina when I was 12. And it was culture shock. I was not ready for what seemed like the civil rights movement hadn't happened, you know, in the outer parts of Greenville. We lived in Piedmont. And I had to deal with a race in a very different way than I did when we were on bases. And I think that started to form me as a poet. I started looking at the landscape. At first, I didn't like all of the jarring juxtapositions. As time went on, I went on and went to college first in my family to graduate from college and majored in psychology and became a counselor. And I was working on my PhD in counseling psych at uh, VCU in Richmond. And I would drive down that Monument Avenue with all the Confederate soldiers and I would just go, I am on the wrong road. I'm on the wrong road, metaphorically and, and literally. literally. <laughs> yes, right, and yeah. I would say that in the 80s, I was saying that in the 80s, I was around 86, 87, 88. And then finally one day I walked in, I was there on a full fellowship and I walked into my major advisor and I said, I do not want to, I, I don't, I don't want to do this, you know? And it was an honor to have a fellowship. But at the same time, he said, well, what do you want to do? And in a small, still voice, I said, Poetry. And it was almost as if I had hit him in the center of his chest. You know, <laughs> his name was Dr. Like, Strong. I remember he was a manly man. He's like, oh, you're one of those. I have a son who's an artist, you know, artist, you know. And but that was the first time I started to claim the word poet. And I didn't know how I was going to get there. And it took many years to unfurl. I went on and took a job because I was married at the time was expecting twins, went on and took a 
uh, position as uh, we moved back to South Carolina from Richmond to be close to family with these multiples. And I took a job as a clinical two counselor for the state of South Carolina, but it was then where my health started to fail. I got, uh, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia and that's a host of things, chronic illness. And back then people didn't understand the, the, what it was. And so what, what happened to me during that year, I took a a year off uh, and uh, tried to regain my health and clarity and I uh, was listening to, and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I was in complete utter pain. I was having a dark night of the soul. And I, you know, asked the universe, asked God, I said, you know, what is it that I, what should I be doing? And I remember turning on the television and there was a poet who was speaking on PBS, Bill Moyer's Language of Life. And it was Lucille Clifton. And I won't do the whole poem, but she, at the end, she says, won't you come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed? And I looked up and I sat up off the couch and I said, that's it. I am going to do poetry no matter what it takes. So that started my role and my path as a teaching artist and a poet. I found a lovely book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. It was my Bible. Love that book. Love, (laughs) love, love. love. (laughs) And so there was just a confluence of things that the universe was kind of conspiring for me to get on this road as poet. Yes, you're useful as a counselor. Yes, you're good at this job, but it's depleting you. So obviously this is not the right track. And so what I did was take all the skills and tools that I had as a counselor, marry them with my um, my skills as a poet and a teacher. And now you have teaching artist poet 28 years later. <laughs> Well, and that's so fun because I think a lot of times we get on a path and we think we have to stay on the path for the rest of our life. Yes. And so being able to pivot and understand that you change as a person and you have a different passion, but being able to recognize it and actually do it takes a lot of courage. Well, I don't know if it took courage because the whole house had to follow me. (laughs) You know, the illness, I think, was the wake up call. And I was really one of these people. I was a box checker and a good girl. And I was a good daughter. I was a good wife. You know, I was a good sister. I was doing everything for everybody else. Good mother, just everything for everyone else but myself. So I had never asked the question. What is it that I really want to do? I got into psychology to try to, you know, understand family dynamics and all that kind of stuff. And you realize at some point, I realized that I can't fix anybody and change anybody but myself. So I started within. Yes. And so this path was very healing and fruitful for me. It just opened up a whole new world. I felt like I was, um, I became my authentic self when I got on the path of poetry. Well, and it's so interesting that you mention your authentic self, because in this day and age, as we're talking much more boldly about racial injustice and social injustice, there is this authentic authenticity, this vulnerability that people are now looking for, um, you know, not only ourselves, but our allies in terms of, you know, like, right, especially those who have no clue about what this real Black experience is like. 
Exactly. And cultural competency is something we don't talk about a lot, but I think it's important. You can be a very intelligent person, but not be competent culturally and not understand what others are going through. And I think being an other, a Black woman, and then also someone who's disabled, also being an Air Force kid, gave me a sensitivity of always looking within and looking at what's going on with other people. And so I think it's uh, we're living in an exciting Um, but also a scary time. There's a lot of volatility to this because some people feel threatened when you start speaking your truth and wanting equity. And it shouldn't be threatening because you're not taking anything away from any other group. What you're trying to do is give gains to those who are in the margins, who are those who have been oppressed. Yeah, no, that's for sure. And so when we talk about diversity and inclusion, I mean, it, it strikes me being an imagination activist along with a poet, a healer. I mean, your background in psychology, there's so many challenges that come up when it comes to just, you know, being able to manage through, especially in a corporate environment where everything is kind of cut and dry. You have to right. cut off your right. emotions yes. in a lot of cases. Do you, I mean, do you as a, do you think there's, the challenges that we come up against that, you know, we, we should better understand in order to, to make a change in this area? You know, it's such a tricky situation, especially in the work world or dealing with any of these institutions, because uh, I think racism and those sorts of issues are systemic and structural. And so a lot of times you get tied around the personal interactions. And so it's hard to kind of navigate those landmines. And of course, you always want to show up and be your authentic self wherever you are. But many times as a woman of color, a Black woman, I'm in a space, I always, I, I, you know, you're not always safe. So you, you want to make sure you're, you're safe and you speak to the level. You always want to be authentic, but you also, there are degrees of that um, as well because you're trying to make a livelihood. And I'm not saying you sell out, but you also have this kind of push-pull kind of thing that you have to do. Now, as an artist and a poet, I think I have a little bit more leeway with that because I, that's my job. My job is not to make anyone feel comfortable. So I think if, and I think there are different degrees how we change. There are people who are on the front line who are fighting. And I did my days, and I'm not saying I wouldn't be on the front line anymore, but a person with stage three multiple myeloma, I'm not going to be on fr- the front lines, you know, um, right now. That's just not, my, but I did that work. And now yeah. I think you can be in institutions and make subtle gradual changes, you, you know, so that's powerful for the next generation. We all can do I think we should do what's in our heart. And I think it's important to listen to our heart and say, so what is my piece? Because I read something, I can't remember who it was on social media today. And he was like, I think that people might get lost in the fire and the fight. Yes. And not pay attention to the grief and the sorrow. And so there are just so many subtle ways and subtle ways that are actually very expansive to um, create change. So I think we all have to tune in and say, what is my calling? How do I impact change the best way? Because the key is to where our talents, wherever our talents lie, that's our path. Yeah. I heard somebody say, we all use our hands in different ways. Yes. And of course you have a book called uh, What My Hands Say. Yes. (laughs) And so I'm, I, as soon as I saw that, I was like connecting dots to figure out, I mean, everybody has 
an opportunity to, you know, contribute in lots of different ways. So it's, it's funny to hear you talk about that. And to me, I guess there's, there's, I know you have lots of history in your background um, and a lot of the things that you do kind of cultivate and nurture that history. And in some cases, uh, you know, we don't know our own history for a variety of reasons. And I think, you know, our allies often don't know what our history was, so they can't even relate to the history. Well, you know, you're so right, Melissa. That's, I think, as a child, I, I want to tell you one window. When I was in the fifth grade living in Aviano, Italy, I remember Miss Anderson, my fifth grade teacher, wanted us to do a coat of arms exercise. So we had to color our coat of arms. We had to study it. And I just was really frustrated. I didn't have the agency uh, to, to say, look, that information I'm not privy to. So right. I just got angry and did what a fifth grader does. I can't remember what I did, but I'm sure I, you know, well, I was loud and boisterous <laughs> or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, but it started then. That was a seed of going, okay, this is, and that's what I mean about stru- structural and systemic. We, you know, there were no DNA tests at that time to find out where our family came from. And there, you know, there was no quote unquote, quote, um, coat of arms for my family. Um, But now, uh, as a poet and artist, I am just investigating. I bought a shield to recreate what a coat of arms would be because, you know, I did my DNA and my mother's side is from Cameroon. My dad's side is from Nigeria, you know, and I have some Native American, very small Native American. I'm one of these people who's like 96.8% African origin, which is really high. Yeah, that is high. Really high. So, uh, but at the same time, I, I always knew that there were these missing pieces. So if I was missing it, we were missing it. You know, others cannot look and see what our work and our heritage and our lineage was. And so as a poet, I'm trying to find the research, factual information, but I'm also in dream time creating that which can never be recovered because we come from a lineage that was not literate um, for many reasons. And um, that's why, you know, you were talking about your husband, the oral tradition of storytelling, the griot. It was so important to, especially our African ancestors, to carry on that line. And so I see myself as, you know, a a neo-griot, a new of the new world of trying to make those connections, going from town to city to all kids, especially kids who don't have access to their lineage. So... Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm doing in the world. Yeah, that's interesting too because to me when when you start talking about diversity and inclusion, you really cut to the core of someone's identity. Right. Um and who they believe they are. Right. And so whatever that is, uh right. you know. <laughs> right. And it's not a fixed point because we're always learning, we're always evolving. So it's not like I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. It's like you're this, you're this and Yes. And so as you grow, you discover. So there are not these fixed points. You're on a path of discovery if you're lucky. And if you're a lifelong learner, you're open to what you learn and what comes to you through family stories, through whatever the case may be. But I do believe, we're, like Maya Angelou says, we're more alike than we are unalike. And that gets lost, especially in the noise of today. But what, you know, I have gone into some sundown towns where, you know, sundown means if you're black, by the time the sun gets down, you better be out of town. 
And those towns still exist. And people would say, well, why are you going there? I said, well, those people need me more than uh, people who already have connected, you know? And so I have had those experiences. Of course, I do get out before sundown, uh, but (laughs) I go in and talk to kids of all ilk and all. And you know what? When I'm there, it's not met with animosity because everybody's got a grandmother. Everybody's got a story. Everybody has, and they're like, oh, oh, I see. You're talking about, what I have, you know, and it's, that's when the walls come down. That's when the division comes down. And that's the power of the arts and not just poetry or storytelling, dance, music, painting. It brings those walls down. And I would love to see us rise. I think we got a lot of work to do, but we have a lot of work. There's Most definitely. It it is definitely a marathon and not a sprint. Exactly. Um, it's going to take a lot. I mean, it took a lot to get us here. Uh, right. You know, as far as we think we've come, we have lots, <laughs> lots more work to do. A um, lot of territory to cover. Yes. Yeah. Well, and the systemic aspects of it kind of go to the the centers of the mind. And so I think a lot of times we're, we don't necessarily, in some cases, have levels of confidence or esteem or our own mindset may limit what we think we have the ability to do. You know, if I walk into a corporation and I go, I want to be the CEO of this company. I mean, I had, I think I had that because my father, Mm. uh, he was born with seven sisters and he watched his (laughs) sisters work hard, but but they didn't have training. So they would get mm-hmm. married, right. then they'd get divorced and they wouldn't ha- you know, they had never worked. They had, you know, lack of skills. And so he ended up with two girls and he wanted to make sure that we knew wow. we could do wow. whatever we wanted. And, and, you know, whether, and he would compare me to the president. What'd you do today? Let's see what the president did today. That's um, so that's, powerful. That's a high bar. <laughs> Yes, but that's wonderful that you had that that um, father figure to to guide you in that way because I think you know a lot of times what happens is this learned helplessness, especially in our culture, where even if we're not physically told we can you know verbally told we can't do something, we learn it you know by looking at the examples before us, and if we've never seen it before, we don't know right. it's available to us. So your father was saying everything's available to you. Yeah, you can yeah. you can do it. You got to get the skills and tools, but you can do it. And that I think is um, so empowering, you know. And yeah. I think our young people are empowered because they have more um, opportunity and role models. They see someone like you, and they go, "Oh, oh, yes." And you know, it's inevitable. We, you know, we just didn't have that. We had the the exceptional few, but we didn't have the landscape that we have now. And we just have to keep getting past the, instead of having the, uh, the first this, the first black yes. this, the first black, you know, we're still in the era of the first because we just haven't made the progress that, you know, we need. Yeah. To. Yeah. That is so true. Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. So when you when you think of your own history and the history of others, like can you talk a little bit about some of the North Carolinian heritage and history? Because I think you there's 
there's just so much there that people don't know. Okay. Um, so I am actually what I call bi-Carolinian. I uh, was born in South Carolina and my family's from South Carolina, but I, I grew, I, I left and I got my poetic wings in North Carolina uh, later okay. in life. So South Carolina, uh, even though I had this kind of love-hate relationship, as I grew, I realized all the answers lead back to South Carolina. My family did not come through Ellis Island. My family and most African Americans, especially in this uh, yes. this area, came through Charleston, South Carolina. Yes. So that's our point of entry. So every time I go to South, uh, go down. So I'm in Greenville, which is upstate. When I go down three and a half hours south to Charleston, I am filled with a certain energy and connection that I don't get anywhere else on the planet. People say, well, where do you want to go? Of course, I love islands and I love to travel. I love exotic locations. But Charleston is the place, the mouth uh, of Charleston, the port, speaks to me louder um, than anywhere else. So it's uh, that kind of, that kind of communication is important to me as a poet. And then also it, get, it gives me a certain grounding. What people, they, people talk about the metal passage a lot, but they don't talk about the second metal passage. And the second metal passage, the first metal passage, passage is, of course, is from, you know, across the seas to wherever they took our uh, enslaved ancestors. The second metal passage is where you were bought from the auction block and where did you go from there? And so my family didn't move far but they moved three and a half hours, four hours north to Greenville, South Carolina. And some did go to North Carolina, some went to Asheville. So I don't know uh, much about that trek. That's what I'm investigating in this next book. I have um, What My Hands Say, and I have a new book that will be published in 2022 called The Listening Skin. But the fifth book will be called Port Cities. And it will be talking about the power of what happens at Port Cities because you can't have an incident of mass people being brought in stripped of their culture without it shaping the rest of the, you know, everything. And yeah. so if you come to South Carolina, it's very, what you think is Southern a lot of times is African. Yes. And yes. so, you know, the food, you know, is very, you know, um, very tight ties, the, you know, the basket weaving, the music, the, the gospel music. So there's a, at my core, there is a very, West African connection through South Carolina. And that's why I think South Carolina, I think everyone should visit because it uh, tells the story once we have left Africa. And even though we don't have all of the information there, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of it there. And there's so many um, people who are trying to preserve the heritage, but it kind of got erased in ways, um, especially when it comes to education. You know, I was, you know, anytime I was in a school, I was Mm -hmm. still looking around like, well, how does this relate to me? Where, where's my history? So I'm sure that's why I cling to being a South Carolinian and I call myself an Afro-Carolinian because we're missing, we're missing that part of, yeah, let's talk about what we added to this land. And that's yeah. why I refuse to let the Confederate flag and these people who say, you know, go back to Africa. This country, this state is just as much my state as it is. There might be a little bit more because of what my ancestors contribute to um, building. And we're finding that not just in the South, 
we're fighting them. The Ivy League colleges that were built on the backs, the White House, everything that was built on the backs of black and brown people. So, um, yeah. but South Carolina is very near and dear to my heart. You know, people talk about jazz and blues and I have a friend who's like, oh, New York, that's the epicenter. I said, actually, if you trace those people, <laughs> many of them have ties. Most of them have ties to the South. Yes, for sure. So it, what my hands say, I'm talking about people like uh, Dizzy Gillespie. Uh, you know, he came from Sherraw, South Carolina. He's Black and Native American. I'm talking about um, Peg Leg Bates, a certain era. He's a one-leg tap dancer. You know, he taught my parents, and he's amazing. People all over the country knew him, but he came from Fountain Inn, South Carolina. So um, I believe a lot, of, a lot of the roads lead back to South Carolina. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I did say North Carolina. The reason I was thinking South Carolina, my husband's family came through South Carolina as well as he oh. investigated his own DNA. Okay. Um, and so there are there are lots of roots that kind of come through there. And in, in yeah. some cases, obviously, I mean, our ancestors paid with in so many different ways. So it's it's so interesting for especially for people that don't know some of the history to understand how all of these systemic all these systems were created to eliminate you know restrict specific people from you know wealth and and, right. and thriving yeah, because, you know, if the premise of African-Americans were not smart, then why would you have to have black codes to keep them from reading and writing? Because if they're not intelligent beings, if they're subhumans, if our ancestors were subhuman, then you wouldn't have to have those laws. So there right. is, it's insidious, you know, because these black codes were, you know, 35 to 40 lashes on your bare back if you're caught reading. If you're a white person and you're teaching a black person to read, there were penalties. It's the same penalties or a financial pen penalty. So, you know, there is lies the rub, you know, to keep people from uh, gaining an expansiveness and a foothold in America. But, you know, still, we're just such a resourceful people that we, you know, we, we, we found our ways, you know, yeah. and we, yeah. we owe a debt. We owe a debt to those who came before us. You know? Absolutely. So then in terms of, I know you're, you're such a teacher that I, I keep having, I want to go back to education and kind of your view on, because I think part of what I'm hearing today, especially when it comes to diversity and inclusion is just trying to educate people um, and create a safe space. And yes. you seem to create that safe space when you're, when, either when you're doing your poetry or, or when, you're, when you're sitting in a poetry circle. What do those things, you know, mean when it comes to, you know, educating people in terms of how they create their authenticity? Because I think you, you clearly are pulling on people to go deeper into themselves. Well, you know, I sometimes, there's a line in my poem, I said, I feel like a, um, my own Harriet Tubman, you know, I'm leading them on the Underground Railroad saying, this, this, this way, you know, right. and you, you can get your freedom papers too. Like I got my freedom papers in the 90s of, you know, becoming my authentic self. And I'm, here's the thing, I'm not asking people to become poets and writers professionally, but of course there are some that show up and that's the path that they're going to lead. You know, I'm really just, um, my job is to be a facilitator 
And one of the things I do in my workshops, yes, I give lectures in on craft of poetry, but the big thing I do is prompting and giving questions. And the root word in questions is quest. So a question is meant to take you on a quest to your inner landscape and go down deep and delve, find whatever that is and bring it back up and write it down. And so it's not a, it's not a simple process. And people you know, they find some conflicting things there, but it's better to find it than to leave it buried because things come out sideways if we don't address them, you know, um, head on, head on. Yes. And so that's my goal. And it is a safe space. I, I kind of, uh, I've loved circles. So we don't sit in rows. I'm not the head because the knowledge that's being, and I believe, um, and I teach everyone, black, white, brown, all people of every um, elk and creed and belief and race and orientation. And what I, you know, what I have this thing when we're in the room, I envision that they have all their ancestors behind them as well. Mm-hmm. And we welcome the ones who are on the right side of, you know, good and change and we welcome them and they're in there. And it's just the, you know, it's an energetic um, moment. It's charged. It's charged. And it's charged for the good and it's charged for the betterment of humanity. And then I just tell them, I say, write your way out, you know, write your way out. Let's generate, let's create. And there, I, I, I call it more, you know, I want to, I call it as sacred as church. It's one of the most sacred places I find is that where we're meeting our truest selves. I believe that that's what the universe, that's what God, that's what the ancestors are getting us to do. And everybody does it in their own form, but you know, I'm a poet. Right. That's what, that's what I do. You know, yeah, and I come from a family of powerful. I come from a family of preachers, you know, and so <laughs> I'm the I'm the poet, you know, but I do feel like the poet's job is uh, a very sacred job, and I take it seriously. Um, I don't think it's me. I think that I'm a vessel, and I think we need more arts, and I think people need to lead their truest selves. Yeah, that's that's impactful. That's that's amazing. I have to ask you though, what was it like? to be working with somebody who ended up in front of Michelle Obama? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to tell you what. I was a little frustrated because I had been working, you know, and we were taking them in to see uh, Michelle Obama. And we we got riddled down from 30,000 students to five students all across the country. And we would take them to the Blue Room and they would get, but see, you, I would be there for the reading, but only the parents and the teachers got to go in and meet Michelle Obama. So I was devastated. Uh, it was the last <laughs> year. It was the last year there in office. And I said, you know what? I called my mom and said, you know, I'm just not going to get to meet Michelle personally. And my mother, who's 83, Jeanette Redmond said, Glennis is coming. You're going to get your chance, child. And I said, yeah, mom. Okay. Right. And so, you know, she's trying to, and I get off the phone. I kid you not, Melissa, five minutes later, she's like, well, we have a student whose uh, parents and teachers cannot be there. And we want to know if you could, (laughs) could you fill in and meet Michelle Obama? And so I had to escort the student in and, you know, you're announced and, you know, you take a picture. So the student first took a picture and then I was all composed and everything. And I'm like, just wigging out. Michelle Obama. And so I, in my turn, and I go to put my hand out 
And she just opens her arms for a hug. And I'm five foot two and she's six foot 20. And (laughs) I come in and I hug her and I just have the cheesiest grin. I'm not composed at all. And then they snap the picture. Of course. (laughs) But, you know, it's that. But um, the students uh, who, you know, I was so jazzed for them because those opportunities weren't around for me and us. And, um, you know, I, it's, I take it seriously. And I said, you know what, this is, you get to start at the pinnacle, you know, yeah, right? it's so powerful. Where do you go from there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you go and do the work, you know, so yeah. it's, it's, it's wonderful to meet, you know, people who are, and I would even call her a celebrity because I felt like the work that she did as first lady and before that um, set sets an example. And she was so down to earth and really like you see, she's exactly what you hear her doing. You know, she talked to them. There is part mother, part teacher, part counselor. You know, she just uh, was so wonderful. And it was one, and my mother was right. My mother just got it right, you know, and I'm just yeah. pleased and I'm pleased for the students. And I, it's sad that we, you know, we don't have that with the administration now, but they get to go to the Library of Congress. They get to go to um, the National Book Festival, um, the Dodge Poetry Festival. There's just so much work for these students to become not just great poets, but ambassadors of the yeah, work. Yeah, absolutely. Ambassadors of the work. We all yes. stand in that in that yes. lineage, right? Just like you're doing with your student that you have there, you know, you pass the work on because that they learn skills and tools and they give us the skills and tools. And it's just really important to me as a teaching artist that I know that I spent 28 years on the road. I won't be doing this uh, road life forever. So you got to pass it on and you got to, or, or, or I say, I want to pass it on. And I want yeah. to, that's part of the work too. Yeah. Well, and I think in any, even if you work in a corporation or a community in some way, at the end of the day, we're not going to live forever, right? So right, right. You, you want to pass that legacy on so that it can become better and bigger uh, as well. Right. And I feel like I want it to be, I want to be the type of teacher I did not, I want it. Because yes. I didn't have, I had some good teachers, but I never had anybody who really saw me and saw my value and my potential and say, mm. I mean, yes. I did have a teacher, Mr. Candler, who said, I think when we first moved back to South Carolina, he said, a black girl, you, you, you know, I came in, it was my freshman year and I was sitting on the first row and he said, a black girl sat there last semester. She was a straight A student. I believe you will be too. And boom, I mean, I just Lit popped up. on honor roll and he just lit something in me, you know, because I was an athlete. I was an actress. I was all of these things, but dancer, but nobody had really claimed me as being intelligent. And that was, that lit the fire. But I, you know, so I try to do, it doesn't take much to yeah. mentor. It doesn't take much to say something positive or empower a student. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm astounded how little it takes. Yeah. But it's there, right? I mean, it's, it's like and once you open that little door, it's amazing how wide it can it can open. So that's awesome. Well, I just want to thank you so much. I could I could spend hours and, and days talking to you. Um, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to a trip to the Carolinas yes, um, to hang out to with Glennis. 
<laughs> yes, we have to. You have to come, and then we'll have to plan a trip to Charleston and go eat some good food, low country food, and then continue the conversation from definitely, there. definitely. <laughs> you, you. As soon as this, as soon as we can go out, I'll be there. <laughs> okay, let's do an invitation. Is already extended. You just all have right. to tell me. We just have to figure out the schedule. Okay, that's all we have to do. You that's can meet right. my mama. She'll embrace you. And, uh, you know, you'll be immediate family. So it has been a pleasure to talk to you about, um, you know, my process, my journey and my craft. And I find what you're doing here with this podcast invaluable because this is a way that others can learn and see. And what we're talking about, cultural competency. Yes. Picking up books, listening to others, deep listening. This is how we how we go further. And, you know, we all have, we all have much to learn. And, you know, I'm, you know, I don't feel like I'm a fixed person. I'm still learning, you know, cultural competency as well. So definitely we all are right. I mean, there's never, never, it never stops. So um, it never stops. And it's so beautiful. And, you know, it's my mother has the saying, and if you, in what my hands say, you'll hear a lot of colloquialism and, you know, my mother says, you know, don't fly so high because everybody has to come down to earth to get a drink of water sometime. Right. And that is the, (laughs) you know, (laughs) this woman, you know, know, and it's true. And and all we have to do is see the humanity in each other while we're on earth. Yes. That's it. Yeah. That's the biggest connection, right? That's the connection. We're all a member of that connection. Right. For those of you that are interested in learning more and reading Glennis's book, What My Hands Say is already out. You can get a copy by Glennis Redmond. And the audio version is actually read by Glennis herself. So do yourself a favor. I have my copy already. Please order a copy and check it out. You won't regret it. Thank you. Well, thank you for all you're doing, all the connections and touch points. I know you are at the, uh, at the height, but I feel like you have higher levels to go. So I'm working sure, on it. <laughs> I am sure we will continue to hear about all of the great things you're doing, you know, in your community and around the world. So keep up your great work. And thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Melissa. Thank you. Thanks for joining me on the Jolly Podcast. Please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. See you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.